Today's scripture is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy 2022. Hopefully you had a nice holiday and a nice New Year this weekend. Uh, In my experience, there are two basic approaches to the new year. There are people who love the new year, who are, they love the fresh start and the clean slate. And these are people who deep down believe when you, when you flip that calendar, when that last number on the end of the year goes up by one, that it represents a, a new beginning. And then there's, there's those people and there's the people who know better than that, that that's not actually what's going on. The people who know that that stuff isn't a new beginning It's just a way for the IRS to organize its tax code more efficiently. I know. I'm being cynical. If you know me at all, that shouldn't surprise you. Um, But I will be honest. January is a really easy time for me to be cynical. It's actually the hardest month for me. All of my least favorite traditions happen in January. Okay? Like shoveling snow in 10 degree weather. It's not one of my favorites. Returning gifts that I, I didn't want. Uh, and then undecorating the house for Christmas, which is my least favorite thing to do all year long. I love Christmas. I love the lights and the decorations and the colors and the festivity. And for a few weeks there in December, it's like we really believed in something. Maybe, maybe you're here and, and you're not uh, a Christian or you're not really sure where you land on this whole Christianity thing, but at least you have the Christmas spirit And the world felt a little different than it does the rest of the year. It feels enchanted, you know? And and then it's like, uh, it's a new year and all that stuff goes back in a box under the stairs or in the basement. And now it's just winter for the next, I don't know, three or four months. It's enough to make me cry just thinking about. And perhaps it's tempting to put Jesus back in that box too. Put him away for a year. It's like, okay, Jesus, I'll see you when I'm desperate enough to pray again or at Easter, whichever one of those two things comes first. And I get that. But here's our hope. Into the cynical winter of January, the Apostle John, whose book we are starting today in a new series, we're going to do the first few chapters of John, he speaks a word. He speaks an incredible word. In fact, he speaks the word. And and John's message is is simple, but it's earth-shattering if it's true. He he says to us that his friend, his rabbi, his teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, is the word of God made flesh. That Jesus, that same Jesus that we just spent a month celebrating, is not a helpful reminder to be kind to your neighbor. He's not uh, an excuse to visit our families. He's not a decoration that we wrap in bubble wrap and put into the garage until next year. He's not a sentiment. He's not a lovely story. He's the Word of God 
made flesh. And John says, I saw him, I spoke to him, I touched him, I knew him. This is his claim. And he wants us to know him too. And he wrote these words, the words of his gospel, into his own cynical, exhausted, beat-up world. And he does the same to ours. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there with me. We're in the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in your New Testament. Chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how John starts the story of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now here's the reason John's gospel is so profound. It's because he tells the story of Jesus so differently from the other gospel writers. By the time John wrote this gospel, which was probably near the end of the first century AD, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already written and already quite popular and in circulation among the Christian community. And where Matthew and Luke, and you should know this because we, you know, Christmas, we always start in Matthew and Luke. They start their histories of Jesus with the details of his birth, right? A poor child, son of a carpenter, born to a virgin in Bethlehem. John focuses somewhere else. John says, yes, all of those details are, re- are really important, but Jesus is so much more than a baby born in a manger in Roman-occupied Palestine in the first century A.D. John says this is not just an earthly story. It is a cosmic one. It is a universal one that begins in the beginning with the Word of God. Now, if those words sound familiar, in the beginning, they should. They are an echo of the very first words of the whole Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And later in that same uh, chapter, it says that God created by speaking. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God created in the, in the beginning and he didn't wave a magic wand. He didn't think creation into being. He spoke. He spoke words. And this theme of God speaking becomes a central theme throughout the entire Bible. God speaks. He speaks at creation. He speaks at the burning bush with Moses. He speaks through the prophets like Jeremiah. God's word in the Old Testament is central to knowing who he is. Not unlike words do for us today. You can't really know someone without their word. Words take that inmost parts of who we are, our hopes and our dreams, our fears and our worries, and they make them accessible to other people. You cannot know someone without their words. And John is saying before all those other words from God, as important as they are, there was the word. There was a living sermon, the word of God before the beginning. And you must know this word to know God at all. And this word is a person. This word is Jesus himself. And this would have been shocking for the Jewish and Gentile reader alike. For the the Jewish reader to say that God was revealing himself in a person named Jesus was blasphemy. God would never debase himself in this way was the thought there. And for the, the pagan Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans too, this was an idiotic concept. The word for them, this word logos is the Greek there, the word, was an idea that was to be grasped by reason alone. It was not a person, but a principle. 
by which the universe could be understood. It's hard to translate this concept to us today, but when you said the word in the Greco-Roman world, they would think of something akin to a theory of everything, an explanation for it all, the key to everything. John says no to both of these approaches in the first few verses of this book. Neither religious dogma nor logical deduction can get you to God. You have to meet his word. You have to know the man, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago. Which means that what John is communicating is that Jesus is the word that you need. Not a set of rules. It's not becoming a better person, though I hope we all want that for ourselves. God is not advice to you. Nor is that God the end result of a list of proofs and logic from a human standpoint. Logic is important. And there are good logical reasons for belief in God. Truly there are, but those will never be enough to know God. This is John's argument. This is why John is adamant that real belief is not found in a perfect syllogism. Real belief can never be found in religious dogma by believing really, really hard and having all of your theological and doctrinal ducks in a row. The world is full of that. Even in non-religious people, and we aren't closer to the truth for it. Real belief, John says, is based on an airtight person. Jesus, the Word, the true revelation of who God actually is. And this is the essence of the Christian faith. This is why I'm spending time on this. It is faith in the person, Jesus. John says the word you really need more than a logical proof or a religious system is the historical person, Jesus, whom I am writing to you about, says John. He was before time. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. This is where John goes next. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, John, you may, not, you, may not, you may not see this, but he's getting into real trouble here, right here. This statement right here is, the, is what makes Christianity the most hated faith in the ancient world. And you could argue one of the most hated faiths worldwide today. The word Jesus was with God and he was God. That's what John says. Now again, for the ancient Jewish reader... To equate any human person with God was blasphemy and punishable by death. The humanity of Jesus was a scandal to the Jew. And we're going to talk about that later in this series. In the Greco-Roman world, in the pagan world, nobody cared if you had a God or lots of gods. As long as you made room for Caesar and you paid your taxes on time, you're good. No big deal. It was an incredibly pluralistic world in the Roman Empire. Sometimes we forget that as modern readers. But the ancient uh, citizens of the Roman Empire were, were familiar with all kinds of different religious systems at the time. Nobody would have cared if early Christians had said, Jesus is a good person to be followed and admired. Great. Or Jesus is a prophet. Or Jesus is a guru. Or even Jesus is divine. He's a, he's a demigod among men. Nobody would have cared. Those were a dime a dozen in the ancient world, just like they are today. So ask yourself, 
why did the Roman Empire try to wipe these people off the face of the planet? Why? Why was John himself likely writing this in exile from the island of Patmos while most of his friends had already been killed? Why did that happen? Because Christians have always, 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 always said that Jesus is not partially God. He's not kind of God. He's not mostly God. He is God. And he is God alone. This is what John means. The word was God. Jesus himself will make this claim. For example, in Matthew 11, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, if you've grown up in the church, especially this church, (laughs) um, or you're familiar with the Bible at all, these words can kind of roll off your back like, oh yeah, that's just Jesus' talk. I cannot overstate how radical a claim Jesus just made about who he is and how that would have been heard in the first century in Judea, in his home country, to say, I'm the son who alone knows the father, God himself. Paul makes the same point in Colossians 1, Paul the apostle. He is, meaning Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's the kind of description a Jew would only make about God. And again, Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Here's my point. Over and over again, throughout the New Testament, it affirms that Jesus is God, the Son, along with God the Father and God the Spirit. Now, I can't get into a full explanation and defense of the Trinity just yet, but all of this mystery is at the heart of Christianity from the very beginning. Jesus was and is and always will be. In him and by him and for him, all things were made. In the beginning, the word of God was with God and he was God. So no matter your religious convictions today, John is adamant, whether you like it or not, that Jesus is God and more than that, that he and he alone is the God you need. You need him. John is telling you that you can only find life if you find God, and you can only find God if you know Jesus. He is the God you need. John is giving us very little wiggle room, and that's intentional. John is not subtle. He doesn't bury the lead. Right off the bat in his gospel, he's telling you Jesus is not an option among many, He's not someone to listen to and learn from and agree with on some things and disagree with on others and then kind of move on with your life. He is God, the creator of all, or he's nothing. Pick. There is no middle ground if Jesus is the God you need. He's either your your only hope in life and death, or he is a fool to be utterly ignored, or worse, he's a sociopath 
that should be locked away and never heard from again. That's it. John lays his cards down. He is all in. He says to us in his own way, I talked to this guy. I knew him. I watched him rise from the dead. This guy is God and he has come to bring us life. And this is his last point, John's last point here, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John is saying Jesus and Jesus alone is the life that we need. He's the life that we need. Now, life is a really tired word in English, isn't it? (laughs) It's a cereal. It's a board game. It's a magazine. What does this mean when John says, in him was life. What does it mean in John? He isn't talking about never-ending life, okay? He's talking about more than that. He's talking about abundant life. Not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life. It's both. In fact, what he's describing is the life that God has had in himself forever. Think about that with me. The perfect love and community between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the community of God himself before the beginning, the word you need offers you the life of God himself, that kind of life. That's not totally clear right here in these first few verses, but if you follow this word throughout the gospel of John, that's the picture John paints. He says, Jesus does not offer you a buffet of all-you-can-eat, never-ending, mediocre life. Here you go. He doesn't offer you more of the life you already have. He offers you exquisite, gourmet life. A different kind of life altogether. John is saying that this word can take your life and wrap it up in God himself. He came to give you life and life abundant. Now that's really hard for us to imagine, I think. Everything I've said so far is is abstract, isn't it? The best I can get to is this, okay? Picture in your mind, if you can, the richest, warmest, most tangible, concrete memory you have. This could be a wedding day, a Christmas morning, the birth of a child or of a grandchild, a graduation, where everything is perfect, the right people, the right place, the right food, the right weather. It was more, if you can think of this, right, it was more than an amount of time that moment for you. It had a quality to it that was different, that made it stand out to you. Whatever that is, if you can hold that in your mind and remember how that felt, know that the life God invites you to in His Word, Jesus, is infinitely better than that feeling. That, even that, is a shadow of the life Jesus, the Word of God, offers to us where every day is a wonder and awe, where every moment is a surprise and a gift, where the stories never end in the life to come, as C.S. Lewis, the author, put it, where every chapter is better than the last. That kind of life. The kind of life, right, that we spend most of our adult lives convincing ourselves isn't real, not because it's too hard to believe, but because it's too good. To dare to dream that such a life is possible, that's too much for us. That kind of life, John says, is in the Word. And it can be your life, too. 
So two things, two things I want us to practice and do as we begin this series in John together. Okay, first is to take the word seriously. Take the word seriously. Whether you're here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian or you're here and you, and you don't, this is a moment to take the word seriously because we cannot manage the word of God. We cannot contain or control or corral him. He, the word of God cannot be taken off the shelf and put back in a box the day after Christmas or on Monday morning after Sunday worship. He cannot be contained. He is everything or he's nothing. And he's confronting each of us with that fact. There is no neutrality with Jesus. We can reject this word or we can love him with everything that we have. What we cannot do is say, hmm, Jesus, that's really interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Let me think about that and get back to you. No. We have to take this seriously. And you may be here thinking, I can't take any of this seriously. Right? The Word made flesh, God made man, Jesus saving us from our sin and rising from the dead. It all sounds crazy. I get it. I lived much of my life with basically the same idea about Christianity. I can't believe any of this stuff, but I, I, rem, I realized, and I ask you to remember with me, that to be human is to put your faith in something. We are all banking on something that we cannot necessarily see or prove. I can't put this better than, than Glenn Shrivener. He's an author and a speaker, and he put it this way. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. That's well said. To be human is to put our faith in something. So take the word seriously. That may simply mean today admitting that whatever it is that you believe and whatever it is that you think about John's argument about Jesus, you don't actually have all the answers either. You don't. And you are not some kind of objective neutral uh, perspective looking at John's personal biased opinion saying, John, you've got to convince me. No. You have a biased opinion that you, that may or may not align with truth yourself. We all have to put our faith in something. Maybe taking this seriously simply means coming to church weekly and getting in the way of the word to actually hear from him at all. And maybe it means diving into the formed life, our, our discipleship material for each of us throughout the week to go deeper with this Jesus who gives life, to practice and experience with him this life now, even imperfectly. My challenge for us as we begin this series in the book of John is to take the word seriously. Take John's claims seriously. Second, is what I want us to do this morning as a response is to eat the word. I know that sounds weird. But in John 8, Jesus says this to anyone who would follow him. He says, I am the living bread. Come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That caused quite a stir in John chapter 8. This is why we practice communion regularly as a family together, as a spiritual family together. It's not because these elements are literally Jesus' flesh and blood, but they're a reminder that we have to eat the Word. 
Because unless you internalize Jesus' death on the cross, until you believe not only that Jesus saves, but that he saves us, that he saves you, unless that knowledge sustains you and nourishes you, this word will have no power for you. You must, in in a real sense, pick up this word and eat it. You must put the blood to your lips, as it were, and drink it and receive it. It's a scandalous image, I know, but it's meant to be. When we participate in communion, we are reminding ourselves that we are in God's story, in his word, Jesus, and that his sacrifice on our behalf, we must pick it up and carry it with us wherever we, we must consume it. We must let it define us. Let, us. let it become a part of who we are. Just as the elements of food are then become elements to construct ourselves and to feed our muscles and to give us life. And only you can accept this gift. Only you can accept this invitation. No one can do it on your behalf. And when you do it, it nourishes you. Because every time we eat and drink, We remember that the God of the universe, the word from the beginning, the creator of all, became spiritual food for us. Everything that food represents, something that you can't live without, something that gives you tremendous joy, something that brings friends and family together, God fulfills at his table. You have to eat the word. And before we do, maybe you're here and you're listening and you're still skeptical That's okay. It's okay to not participate in this if you're not ready to. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that's okay. John was skeptical too (laughs) when he first started. He was a good Jewish boy. For him to believe that Jesus was God, that was unthinkable to him, at least at first. But then John spent three years of his life with Jesus. They traveled together. They ate together. They lived together. They were friends. Think about that. What would it take What would it take your friend to do to get you to write these words about him? But John saw it. He saw the word, not in power and privilege, not in glory and majesty, but as God incarnate hanging on a cross for our sins. He saw the one who made the trees nailed to one, and the grave could not hold him. And John saw it. No wonder he believed. No wonder he wants us to believe. The word of God, if we take it seriously, can make believers of us all if we let him. Let's pray to him now. Father, as we come to your table, as we prepare to come to your table, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak to each one here. We all bring with us doubts and fears, worries and anxieties, hopes and dreams, guilt and sin and shame. But we are all in your son Jesus invited to this table to receive again, to remember again the grace that his sacrifice affords us. So speak to us. In all of those little spaces that only you know, Encourage us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.